nations meeting yet again to avert climate chaos. A daunting task made all the more difficult, with the world barely recovering from the pandemic and already facing war and an energy crisis. Now more than ever, the rift between the North and Global South is growing wider. Welcome to the special COP27 edition of Down to Earth. This year, world leaders are gathering in the Egyptian resort city of Sharm el-Sheikh as the threat of catastrophic climate disruption becomes ever more present. Losses from climate-related disasters are on the rise, and the question of who will foot the bill is likely to dominate discussions. $329 billion. That's the bill for severe weather events in 2021. 105 billion in floods, 92 in cyclones, 21 in droughts. In short, climate chaos destroying property, infrastructure and livelihoods, a direct result of high CO2 emissions. Some have tried to put a price on these emissions. So the social cost of carbon tries to encapsulate all of the possible benefits, but also the, especially the damages of an extra ton of CO2. One estimate puts this at as high as $3,000, but this is with a huge range of uncertainty around it. Not to mention the unquantifiable human cost. Lives lost and 20 million people a year forced to migrate. And it's a narrative that reeks of injustice. The G20, the world's richest, produced 75% of these emissions. Meanwhile, the V20, a coalition of 55 climate-vulnerable countries, contributes only 5%. Some have lost more than half of their growth potential in 20 years to global warming, an average loss of around 20% of GDP. To add insult to injury, poor countries have poor credit ratings, the cost of borrowing is higher. And for countries like Pakistan, going up at three times the rate of the US. It really, it changes your ability to borrow, uh, which means that any rebuilding is more expensive on a per dollar basis in a developing country than a developed country. $100 million in, in France, for, for example, could cost just $2 million in financing. In a developing country, this could cost $20 million in financing per year. OECD countries had promised $100 billion per year in climate finance by 2020. They came up 17 billion short. It's long been the sticking point of climate negotiations, loss and damages. It's an insurance mechanism for vulnerable nations hit by climate-related disasters, a hurricane, floods or slow onset events like rising sea levels. In other words, financial reparations for disasters developing nations can't adapt to. So far, only Denmark has pledged $13 million, a far cry from what is needed. That's because rich countries continue to resist calls to loosen the purse strings, fearing it could set a precedent, especially as climate change takes hold. In the last two years, for example, the African continent has been battered by no less than 130 extreme weather events. Countries have yet to agree on a funding mechanism, but new ideas are emerging. 
like imposing a tax on fossil fuel companies making record profits, close to $100 billion in the first three months of 2022. There's even talk of a global climate-related tax. Now more than ever, the principle of global solidarity will be put to the test. For more on what we can expect from COP27, I'm joined by Lola Vallejo. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. First of all, let me ask you about loss and damages. The floods in Pakistan recently are a good example of what's at stake when we talk about loss and damages. Should the West, should rich countries pay for the damage caused in Pakistan? That's uh, the burning political question for this COP. The IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, has been much more vocal in recognizing losses and damages from climate change. And I think it gives a strong scientific basis to the discussion now. And also, because we've been so slow in actually curbing down our emissions, we can see that the catastrophes have only uh, become more dire and extreme. So the moral case, which was there before, is now really hard to brush under the carpet. And that's also why we have such a politically explosive situation right now. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has called on wealthy nations to tax the windfall profits of fossil fuel companies. And it's a really strong kind of moral argument in, in, in favor of social justice. And I think a lot of people will relate to that, especially now uh, in the midst of an energy crisis. Should countries really uh, consider that option as a solution? Well, first, we need to remember that some countries are already taxing the fossil fuel profits. So there is this potential for uh, raising revenue. The question is, how do you spend it? And I think it would also be a tough sell sometimes to say that this money is going to uh, cushion the blow of impacts abroad. But clearly, there's a, a very strong argument for doing so. It's just, it could be a tough political sell. Other countries have suggested having a levy on um, airplane tickets, for instance, or using special assets reserve from the international monetary funds. There are a few options on the table, but none that is currently um, supported with sufficient weight to become a real political project. At this COP, countries will have to grapple with the fallout from a global energy crisis, fueled by the war in Ukraine and Russian gas shortages. Europe is now racing to secure alternative supplies, investing in new gas projects. So will this lock the world into more fossil fuels? And will countries backtrack on their climate commitments? Smoke is once again billowing out of chimneys at this coal-fired power station in northeastern France. It's one of many across Europe whose operation has either been extended or restarted since shutting down. Power generation using coal has shot up by over 20% in France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain and the UK since last year, despite the continent's commitment to phase out coal by 2030. For many, a return to the world's dirtiest energy source was unthinkable a year ago. But analysts say the temporary move won't derail climate commitments in the long run. Their failure to anticipate uh, the, energy, the energy transition 
has made it unavoidable that they had to reopen some coal power plants. And I think everybody feels sorry about that. But I don't think this is a long-term signal, and hopefully this will only be a short-term measure. Amid soaring gas prices sparked by Russia's war in Ukraine, several European countries are also eyeing up African gas resources. Italy has struck fresh deals to buy gas from Angola and the Republic of Congo, while Germany has been looking to secure supplies from Senegal. The International Energy Agency estimates that Africa's gas reserves could potentially replace up to one-fifth of Russian supplies to Europe by 2030. Though some are warning that this would bust global climate targets, and according to this expert, at the expense of ordinary African people. And we cannot be finding solutions when um, those that have got us into the problem are still uh, exacerbating the problem by continuing to be hooked and hooking other regions that have not been uh, hooked on fossil fuels uh, that caused the problem. Africa accounts for less than 3% of the world's energy-related CO2 emissions. Environmental campaigners argue that the continent has many opportunities for renewable energy that aren't exploited enough, and that Western countries need to help construct the infrastructure. When it comes to solar power, for example, Africa has 60% of the world's best sources, but only 1% of current solar generation capacity. Let's bring back our guest, Lola Vallejo, Climate Program Director at the Institute for Sustainable Development and International Relations. Um, I'd like to ask you, there's something about the energy crisis at the moment that many people find hard to understand. Uh, prices have gone through the roof. Why are countries continuing to invest in fossil fuel infrastructure instead of massively investing in renewable energy? You'd think it, it would make sense. This is clearly um, a fossil fuel energy crisis, and it really shows that uh, contrary to what was previously thought, relying on cheap fossil fuels is actually not a resilient long-term strategy. So right now, we're talking a lot about sufficiency measures or rationing measures, but these can only happen in a time of emergency, and a time of crisis, out of solidarity with the Ukrainian people. I think if we plan ahead, and had we invested better in the past as well in energy efficiency, we would not be in this current situation. For instance, France had had for decades objectives to reduce its energy consumption in buildings. If we had met those objectives, uh, we would today not need to import any Russian gas. And I think it's really important to understand that what we do now still has uh, a lot of relevance for how much fossil fuel we'll need to use in the coming years. We saw in our report just now how European countries are courting uh, African gas producers to shore up supplies. Would you say that gas, a fossil fuel, is one of the main flashpoints at COP27? And how much friction will it generate at the negotiating table, in your opinion? The science is very clear. If we want to meet the 1.5 target, we should not invest in any new capacity in oil and gas. That being said, I think it's really difficult to make that argument to African countries, which still need a lot of resources to invest in basic infrastructure and lift their population out of poverty. When you see, on the same time, uh, developed countries such as the UK and others drilling new wells for oil and gas right now. Uh, so I think we have to be exemplary, and it will considerably strengthen whatever argument of clean development and solidarity we want to make to our African counterparts. 
Lola Vallejo, Climate Program Director at the Institute for Sustainable Development and International Relations. Thank you very much for your analysis. Thank you very much. Do make sure to follow our special coverage of COP27 live from Sharm El Sheikh here on France 24. And stay tuned, more news coming up.